Our first scripture reading this morning as has been the past several weeks is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. If you wish to follow along with the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find this on page 83 of the Pew Bible. Listen now for a word from God. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he began, even to this place. Friends, our second text is from the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter, verses 1 through 6. We're in the third week of a sermon series called The Problematic Jesus. We are exploring texts, stories from the New Testament, where Jesus' actions and words sort of stirred controversy, where the religious leaders of the day began to deem him as a problem. Uh, This story comes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just three chapters in, Mark's telling, beginning with verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered or a paralyzed hand. They, meaning the religious leaders, watched him, that is Jesus, to see whether he would cure the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save or to kill But they were silent. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hard-heartedness and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About two weeks ago, uh, Luke and I, our younger son, we drove to the Atlanta airport. We went to the international terminal to be specific. We were picking up a a student uh, named Iago. He was coming from Spain and he was going to stay with us for two weeks. Uh, We had met Iago only via Zoom. The way that we made the connection is that we have a mutual friend Uh, that is from Pennsylvania, but she spent most of her adult life living in a small town north of uh, Barcelona called Besalu. And her name is Cindy, and Cindy tries to get students from this little town, this school, uh, especially students who are learning English, to come for a, a short stint. Not an exchange program, but just a couple of weeks to get a taste of America. So that's why Iago was coming. That's why we were on our way to the airport. Uh, 
So I was checking uh, my phone, the flight app, to see when Iago's plane was about to arrive. Uh, he landed a little bit early, which is always good. Uh, he texted me on the WhatsApp. He said, we've landed. I'm going to get off the plane. I'm going to go to passport control. I said, great. Once you go through passport control, uh, you'll get your bag, and then you will make your way to the arrivals hall, and Luke and I will be right there waiting for you. He said, I can't wait to see you. We hadn't texted for about 10, 15 minutes. Um, I shot him a text. Is everything okay? He said, no, not really. He said one of the officers pulled him out of line and put him in a room off of the main security area. He said that the officer told him to wait here until he came back. And in all caps, I wrote, what? Why? And he wrote back, I don't know, but I'm very nervous. What actually happened was that when he was asked by the Homeland Security agent at Passport Control where he was staying, Iago said, with a family in Atlanta. The officer then asked, well, do you know the family? Which he said, no, not really. <laughs> We've only met on Zoom. That raised a red flag, and rightfully so. Another officer was summoned to that kiosk, and he took Iago to that room I mentioned before. They needed time to verify his identity, but more importantly, more importantly, they needed to make sure that he was going to be safe once he walked through those security doors. About an hour passed, and I got a a phone call, a number I didn't recognize. I picked it up. It was a Homeland Security officer. He cordially introduced himself. He explained to me what had happened. And he then asked, you can understand why we would be concerned. And I said, absolutely. I appreciate your, your due diligence and your attention. I appreciate all the work that you and so many officers do. I know what happens at the Atlanta airport. And I'm so thankful that you are doing your job. I said, would it help you um, if my son and I meet you in the customs office just next to Starbucks outside of the security doors? Would it help if we just make a connection and we can talk? And he said that would be a good idea. So he and another officer came out with Iago to meet us. Uh, for the next five minutes or so, the officers quite literally interrogated me. I mean, they asked me question upon question what I did for a living. They were surprised when I said a pastor. Uh, they asked where we lived, how many times we've done this before, what the connections were, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the things you would hope officers in the service would, would do. Uh, but I was interrogated. I was under scrutiny. Uh, after about five minutes of this time, they looked at Iago and said, are you okay with, to go with them? And he was so excited that he said, see, sí, see. Sí. <laughs> As we turned and, and walked away, uh, Iago and Luke kind of put their arms around each other. And about 15 paces on, I turned around to look to see if the officers had gone back into the security area. They hadn't. They were standing there and they were watching me, continuing to do their job, looking out for any signs of impropriety, making sure that Iago really was going to be safe with us. 
As I said, they were doing their jobs. And as an aside, I think we should all be very, very grateful for that. I'm sure that some of you know uh, the feeling of being under investigation. Uh, maybe not formally, I hope not formally, uh, but perhaps with someone in authority. Maybe it was law enforcement, or maybe it was a teacher, or a parent, or a supervisor at work. When we are being scrutinized in such a way, it's not a great feeling, especially when our intent and action did not warrant such scrutiny to begin with. Throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the scribes and the Pharisees, kept a close eye on Jesus from the outset, the very outset of his public ministry. He was a person of interest in their eyes. He was a suspected rebel, a suspected lawbreaker. Mark tells us quite clearly, and I quote, they were watching him. They were watching him, observing his every move, parsing his every teaching, waiting and scheming for a way to trap him, to prove what they had already considered to be truth about this Jesus, that he was a rebel, that he was a lawbreaker. In this text from Mark, the Pharisees are keeping their eyes on Jesus in the synagogue. Jesus had shown up that Sunday as a good faithful friend of God to worship God and perhaps even teach from the Holy Scriptures. And we assume that Jesus, when he encounters the Pharisees, I think it's safe to assume that he was aware of their suspicion. He could feel their eyes on him. He also seemed to be aware of the fact that they were looking for a reason to, quote, accuse him and to eventually, quote, destroy him. Now Mark tells us that at the synagogue that day, there was a man who had a withered hand. Literally in the Greek, it means paralyzed. A hand that no longer functioned, no longer had feeling, no longer had strength. The Pharisees watched with intent to see if this Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath day. You've got to understand that a little bit of uh, a little bit of history here, some context. Uh, it was prohibited for any good Jew to do work on the Sabbath, and these Pharisees and scribes considered healing to be a form of work. And so they were looking and watching. They were suspicious. Will Jesus heal this man? And if he does, we have him trapped because he is working on the Sabbath. Fully aware of what the Pharisees have in mind, Jesus asks them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? What a great question. Is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? The Pharisees, Mark tells us, did not say a word. They kept silent. That's a whole nother sermon. But what's really interesting to me is what happens next. Mark tells us that Jesus looked at them and was both angry and grieved at their hardness of heart. This is a key part of the text. If we're going to understand it, he was angry and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And Jesus said to the man, reach out your hand. And as he extended it, everyone realized, including the man himself, that he was healed. He could feel again. He had a range of motion could touch his fingertips to his palm and could feel what that feels like. Good for the man. Really good for the man. Not so good for Jesus. 
The Pharisees had what they needed to build a case against him. He is a rebel. He is a lawbreaker. He healed on the Sabbath. In fact, he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, that he's in charge of it. This problematic Jesus must be stopped. So our theme for this sermon series is, in fact, the problematic Jesus. And there has been an anchor that has held the previous two sermons, that holds this sermon down, that will hold next week's sermon down. And it's this big idea that behind every radical action or radical teaching of Jesus, we find a radical truth to be discovered. Behind every radical action and every radical teaching of Jesus, we find a radical truth to be discovered. So what is the radical truth behind Jesus' radical action when he healed this man on the Sabbath day? And here's what I believe the radical truth is. That religious folks, religious folks, That means us. Religious folks sometimes get worked up and bent out of shape and hyper-focused about the things that break our own stony, self-righteous heart instead of the things that break the self-giving heart of God. That religious folks sometimes get hyper-focused on what breaks our stony, self-righteous heart and not what breaks the self-giving heart of God. In this case, the Pharisees were so hyper-focused on entrapping Jesus as a rebel and a lawbreaker that they failed to remember what was commanded them in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, a great precept to live by if you're a friend of God. Choose life. Choose life. But they were so hyper-focused on their suspicion of Jesus that they failed to focus on a man in their midst who had a real need. They failed to have compassion. They failed at the greatest commandment, to love their neighbor as themselves. Back in uh, May, my father-in-law, Katie's father, Jonathan, uh, the two of us, we, we were in Philadelphia. Uh, I was up for the Princeton Seminary Reunion. And we had a chance to visit one of our mutual friends and one of my professors. His name is Dr. Tony Campolo. I've talked about him before from this pulpit. We were going to get to visit with him and his wife, Peggy. They live in a continuing, uh, continuing rather care facility just on the outskirts of Philly, Uh, They live on a nursing floor, and they actually have two different rooms. They're across the hall from uh, one another. Peggy can still get around with relative ease. Tony, on the other hand, is largely confined to his bed after having a stroke a few years ago. He's 88 years old. He's lost his mobility, but his mind, his wit, and his love of preaching has remained. In fact, I found out that on Sunday afternoons, the nurses and the aides, they wheel in or walk in other residents from that floor, six to 12 of them at a time, and they all gather in Tony's room, and Peggy will read a scripture, and Tony will preach a 20-minute sermon, which is short for a Baptist, a 20-minute sermon without any notes. I know some of you have heard him preach over the years, particularly if you're of a certain age. Uh, His sermons these days are a lot less uh, passionate, shall we say. 
They're more tame than the sermons he gave in his younger years. In his prime, uh, Tony was considered to be one of the best preachers in the country. He was able to combine his Ivy League academics with uh, the biblical, relational, and emotional intellect formed in him by many years in the black church. Add that to his fiery passion that was passed down from his South Philly Italian heritage, and every sermon he preached stirred the heart, touched the mind, challenged the life to serve Christ. Tony was known for using the same stories and the same rhetorical uh, tools. He didn't write but more than six sermons that he preached across the world in a given two-year period. And in and, and, and one segment, a, a couple of years, he would often use this same rhetorical tool in his sermons. And it went something like this. At some point, whether at the beginning or at the end, he'd say something like, tonight, 29,000 children are going to die because of hunger and hunger-related issues. And you don't give an expletive about it. Except he didn't say the word expletive. He'd pause for a second. And then he'd say, in fact, you care more that I said the word expletive than you do about the 29,000 children who are going to die tonight. It was a provocative and powerful rhetorical tool especially you consider that many of his audiences, many of the congregations were evangelical. They were pious, a little more conservative. They had never heard their preacher talk that way from the pulpit. And unfortunately, Tony was proven to be correct more often than not based on the phone calls he got from the inviting pastors or letters he got from people at the conference who heard his sermon who were more offended that he used crass language from the pulpit than they were the reality of 29,000 children dying that very day. He was right. They were stirred up and worked up about the wrong things. Allow me to close with, with this question. What gets you worked up? I'm not talking about your spouse stealing your covers at night. I'm not talking about your kids leaving their dirty clothes all over the room. I'm talking about from a spiritual or theological or a moral or an ethical, if you will, perspective. What gets your heart going? What pumps your blood? Or to, to frame it in the way that we encounter Jesus in this text, what makes you angered and what makes you grieve at what you see in your life or in the life of the world? The fact that the preacher cursed from the pulpit or the fact that children will go to bed hungry tonight. The fact that you were inconvenienced and had to be interrogated at the airport. Or the fact that children are being trafficked right here in our backyard. What gets you worked up spiritually, theologically, in your Christian life? Is it legalism or is it love? Is it rigidity or is it forbearance? Is it vengeance or is it forgiveness? Is it exclusion or is it embrace? Is it dominance or is it self-sacrifice? The Pharisees got worked up, all worked out, all worked up rather, bent out of shape over what they perceived to be a transgression of the law. What got Jesus worked up 
was the Pharisees' hard-heartedness towards someone in need. The hard truth asks us this question, what about you and what about me? Do the things that break the heart of God break your heart? The radical truth behind Jesus' radical action in Mark 3 is that they absolutely should. They absolutely should. And by God's grace, and here's the good news. I don't want you to leave without hearing this good news. The good news is that God can work on your heart. Some of us are self-aware enough that there's more stone than there is flesh in our heart. We know in our own lives where we get hyper-focused on the things that at the end really don't matter at the expense of those who are in need. God can give us by grace a new heart. I love what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In the words of the English poet George Herbert, paraphrasing it to make it a prayer, Lord, may our stony hearts bleed. May our stony hearts bleed. And may they bleed for what breaks the heart of God. Amen.